when Lauren and I were um, in campus ministry, we met a student whose name was um, Brad Schroeder. Brad Schroeder was a Canadian hockey student who had come um, to the university on a hockey scholarship. And this dude could skate on the ice like LeBron James could run the court. It was amazing how good he was in hockey. But the problem with hockey for me is that I grew up in a soccer, basketball, baseball, football uh, family. And so whenever I saw hockey on TV, you know, I, I turned the channel. It was totally foreign to me. It was weird. It was, it was frankly a little strange that men put on skates and moved around on ice. I didn't understand the rules. I had no idea about it. I really didn't get what it was that hockey was really about except trying to get this ball, which wasn't even a, it was a puck, into this net. Until one day Brad Schroeder sat me down and he pulled out all of his equipment and he taught me the rules of hockey. And then he invited me even to skate on the ice with him. And it was after that point that Brad taught me how hockey is to be played that I began to watch it again with a totally different eye. And what used to be totally foreign and strange and unfamiliar to me became something artistic and beautiful. And so last month, when I go down to Tulsa to watch Brad Rutman play hockey, right, this weird um, north what I, girly man sport, he plays it with such grace, and he's like Brad, very good. I was able to watch it with a totally new pair of eyes. The thing about playing in a church is that it's very much like trying to learn a sport that you've never known before. The thing about being the church is like a football player learning how to play hockey. You have totally different rules. You have a totally different technique. You have a totally different way of movement. And you have totally new and different equipment. And we've been looking these weeks at what the church is. Because being the church in Oklahoma is like hockey. If you want to make an analogy out of it, I mean, some of us um, are learning about analogies in school. You might say that hockey is to Oklahoma what being the church is to you and me. It's unfamiliar to really be the church. We go to church, but to be the church is something totally different. We aren't used to the ice. It's quite uncomfortable, and frankly, sometimes it's just um, not that pretty because the church is a beautiful mess. But what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 is that the church is the immeasurable power of God. It is the evidence that God is at work in the world. The whole story of the Bible, let me make sure that you're with me. The whole story of the Bible is the story of God fulfilling his promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. He says this in Exodus 6 and he says it again in Revelation 21. And if the gospel is to be the heart of the church's life and mission, then it is equally true that the church, the new community, is to be at the heart of the gospel's life and mission. John Stott said it this way. He said that the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. 
It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an, ancient, an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. And for this purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church. That it is to call out of the world the ecclesia, the called out ones, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. But here's the problem with the church. Many of us have been hurt by people in the church. And so isn't it interesting that despite our experience, that when Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, I want them to know the immeasurable power of Christ's greatness. He says that that's manifested in two ways. First is in the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, that you're personally transformed, that the quarter drops in your heart, so to speak, that you get the gospel and you become a Christian. But he doesn't stop there. Then he goes on into the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, if you want to walk in Christian maturity, the second evidence of Christ's immeasurable power of his greatness is in the reconciled new humanity. And that's what we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We said two weeks ago that if you understand the cross of Christ, the riches of Christ, the hope that we have in Christ, the power of Christ... Out of this great prayer in Ephesians 1, verse 15 through 23. Then any two people, no matter how different they are, are able to get along. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, that he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of two and so making peace and might reconcile both us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The cross, the church, doesn't erase our differences. It just no longer allows us to define ourselves chiefly by anything else other than the redemptive work of Christ in our heart. Racism or elitism or superiority has no place in the church. Out there, People can look down their nose at people, but in here, no matter how estranged or marginalized or weird or funky you feel, in Christ's church is the place when you can see the manifestation of the power of God and the way we learn to love each other despite our differences. Because the truth is, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't just walk out of the church, you would run. But isn't it wonderful how the cross becomes like a magnetic pole that pulls us together? Two weeks ago, we saw that if you understand the cross, any two people are able to get along. And the last week, we saw that if you understand the cross, if you get the cross, if you understand the riches that you have in Christ, then your past record of morality, no matter if you were a call girl or a choir girl before Jesus, your past record of morality only magnifies the power of the cross. He says in Ephesians chapter 2.13, now if... In Christ Jesus, you were once far off. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then in 17 and 18, and when he came, he preached peace to you who were far off, that are Gentiles who did not have the things of God, were not uh, exposed to the gospel in an early age, or the Jews who grew up in the church. He preached peace to those who were far off, and he preached peace to those who are near, because through him we both 
have access in one spirit to the Father. And so now this week, just in the moments we have before the supper, I want to give us a third principle. The third principle, and it comes out of verse 19, and I just want us to settle on it for a few moments together. Let me give you the principle, and then I'll talk about some of the implications of it. All right? Here's the principle. If you understand the cross, if you really get the cross, if you understand the riches of the cross, then it redefines your responsibility to one another. If you get the cross, if you understand it, then it redefines your responsibility to one another. Ephesians chapter 2 addresses relationships in the church. And our unity admits the, the radical diversity even of our church. I mean, you look around and you what's not, not that diverse. It is pretty diverse when you know the stories of the people here. Admits the radical diversity and the growing diversity as our church grows, of our church. Paul is calling us together to be unified as one body, even as a local body, a young church plant in a lost so-called trinity. And you see the implications of this because you see where you have been and you see where you can be. Paul says, listen, this is where you have been. Look at verses 11 and 12. The Jews had a word of contempt for people when they really wanted to tick somebody off. You know what they called them? Uncircumcised. Oh, that'll get them. (laughs) The Bible's so funny sometimes, isn't it? That'll get them. That was like calling somebody... um, a dog of a human being. It was lower than human to call someone uncertain because you're calling them a Gentile, somebody who has no access to God. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, tells these Gentiles that they were absolutely hopeless. And they were. And he lays out five things that they did not have. He says they were formerly without Christ, which means that they didn't have Christos in Greek. They didn't have the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. They had no access to God whatsoever. All of Scripture talks about Jesus, the Messiah. You can take your Old Testament and you can look at you know, Genesis 3.5 or Genesis 49.10 or Deuteronomy 18.15 or Numbers 24.17 or Isaiah, you know, those great Christmas passages, you know, Isaiah 7.14 and 9.6 and 11.1 and Isaiah 53. All of the, Psalm 2, all of these Old Testament passages that point to the coming Messiah, the Jews had in their back pocket. They had it memorized. They were exposed to him from a very young age. But the Gentiles, oh, they had no knowledge of this whatsoever. And Paul says they were hopeless. He says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They had none of the privileges that belonged to God's people. They were strangers to the covenant of promise. Strangers, there is a Greek word that means that you are in a country only by permission and you can stay there only by a special treaty. The Gentiles were there only by a special treaty. They really weren't full members. They had no hope. That was a catch-all to say, in case you missed the point, you guys were absolutely hopeless and they were without God in the world, which is the word atheos, atheist is where you get the word and They were totally without God. They were atheistic to the core. The Gentiles were hopeless. And Paul wants 
you and he wants me to remember that before you came into the church, brothers and sisters, you were absolutely hopeless. Paul lists five ways that the Gentiles were hopeless and you could take a list and write one, two, three, four, five and sometime this week you can write five ways that you were absolutely hopeless before you came to Jesus. And you ought to do it. It's an amazing opportunity for you to learn how wonderful Christ has been to you. You were once seeking power through sex or money or prosperity or whatever before you came to Jesus. Whatever those five things are for you. And then Paul takes this hopelessness of the Gentiles and then he massages them a little bit. And he says that no matter what you give your life to, no matter what you have done, this is now where you are, Ephesian believers. You can be, in verse 19, brought home. I was, in, um, I was driving to Tulsa the other day and I saw a billboard for a church and it said, you know, name of church, feels like home. And of course, we all know what, he, what they mean, right? It doesn't mean like, okay, this is my bathroom door. Uh, yeah, it feels just like my bathroom hallway. And this is my, this is my house, you know? That's not what, it, it's a metaphor, right? To, to speak of the comfort. And, but the truth of the matter is that for the abused daughter of the drunk daddy, home was not a very appealing place to be. And for the son with helicopter parents who made him punch the clock every time he left his room, tell him where he goes, home was not a very welcoming place to be. The truth is that that metaphor is outworn its welcome in our society because so many of our homes simply don't feel like home anymore. They're not very comfortable. And Paul knows this about the Gentiles too, and so he works on them a little bit. He, he works on them. He doesn't just drop this members of God's household metaphor. He works on them a bit. And the way he works on them is he says, first of all, I want you to know that you are fellow citizens, that you have a homestead, and this homestead looks like this, your fellow citizens, which to be fellow citizens, it means that there's a change of status from being an alien and a stranger, you see that in verse 19, to now being a citizen. And it also means that your authority is different, right? When you become a member of the United States, a citizen of the U.S., your authority is different. It's the same with these Gentiles. You have a new change of status, you have a new authority, and I want to look at these two things very quickly. You are no longer who you once were, is what Paul is trying to say to them. You have a change of status. You are a fellow citizen. Let's say that you're in college. You know, let's say that you're back in college, guys, and you're trying to pledge a fraternity, right? And you're, you know, you go to these Fiji and SAEs and, um, you know, these, these uh, Sigma Chi parties, and you're walking around and you just feel weird. It's like, all these dudes have older brothers that are in the fraternity. They have dads that are in the fraternity, and they start throwing around this word this 50-cent word called legacy. I'm a legacy. And they're like, they're shoe-ins for this fraternity. And you're sitting there, and you're like, uh, I'm a freshman. I've got braces. Or I've got pimples. I don't look. I, I'm never going to be accepted. And then out comes the president of this fraternity, and he walks up to you, and he says, I'm so glad you're here. And he takes you by the hand, and he walks you around, and he introduces you to every guy in that room. And he says, this guy is with me. 
And you get in because you knew the president of the fraternity. The, the message of the gospel is that we walk, Jesus Christ sees us across the room and he walks up to us and he says, I'm going to change your status from outside to inside. And I'm going to do it because of my merit, not your own. And it begins to introduce us to each other based upon his merits. And so therefore, we're able to love each other when we're hard to love. Because we ourselves know how broken we have been and how much the cross renews us. Are you with me? There is a legal change of status. To say that you could never be part of this or that group, never be part of this or that family. Some of you still come to church every week and you say, I will never feel part of a church. And you sit in those re- these red chairs and you look at the sermon and you look at the preacher and you sing the songs and you still don't feel like you fit in. Listen, You look Satan in the eyes and you say, get behind me. I am bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and he has brought me in. Brother, sister, you're messy. But that's what the church is. It's messy. And unless we recognize that, we will never be the church because there's only one clean person in this room and it's Christ Jesus himself. And he brings us together based upon his legacy, his merit, not your own. Jesus is your legacy. Jesus is your legacy. Whenever you feel socially ostracized or socially inferior to a group of people. You just remember, brother and sister, Jesus Christ, the one who made every person in this world, is your legacy, and he speaks up for you. So walk in fear no more. You also answer to a new authority. You don't answer to the old master. You answer to Christ. And Christ opens his arms to you and says, when you trust in me by my blood, you are cleansed. And he welcomes you like a brother. Paul is working on the, he's working on him. He can't just drop this home metaphor in their lap yet because even the Gentiles, some of them had horrible homes. The Father accepts you because in light of Jesus' recommendation, you're in. Romans 6.22 says, you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And Jesus made that recommendation very clear for you and for me on the cross. And when you go for a job, for example, you ask somebody to write a letter of recommendation for you. Listen, Jesus don't write letters of recommendation. Jesus goes with you to that job interview, and Jesus says, I'll show you how bad to this job interview before your Father in heaven. And he says, I'll show you how welcome this young man or young woman is. I'm not going to write a letter. I'm going to die. I'm going to give up my life for them so that they can go in. And if you'd been the only man or woman that had ever lived in time or space or history and he called you to himself, he would have died just for you. Do you see how powerful the gospel is? It is unlike anything else in the world. J.I. Packer one time said that in paganism, man propitiates his God and religion becomes a form of commercialism and indeed of bribery. But in Christianity, however, God propitiates his wrath by his own action. 
he sets forth Jesus Christ to be the propitiation of our sins. Um, some of you have heard of the song Cademan's Call. You know, there's that great song that Daniel Young sang called Just a Piece of Glass. Have you all ever heard that song before? It's a story about a young girl who looks in the mirror and she has a, a dialogue with the mirror. And she launches off into soliloquy and she writes these lyrics. She said, I can't believe that I did it again. Wake me up from this nightmare because this monster is wasting me away and taking my days. Every day I live a bit less. One night leads to another. Even if I went back, would they recognize me or criticize me? And still I control this nightmare when, it call, when I call it answers, but I can't tell it when to come or when to stay. Don't talk, listen. Hold me tighter, stay with me just a while until the sun shines, stay with me. Just give me one more day. Who are you that lies when you stare me in the face, telling me that I'm just the trace of the person I once was? Because we're not the same. You're just a picture of me. You're gone as soon as I leave. You've lived my life for me, and you're no more than a piece of glass. You're no more than just a piece of glass. Human nature is such that we will be enslaved to something. And for some of us, that means we're actually enslaved to a reflective piece of glass. Enslaved by our looks by our appearance, by the fearful threat of other people's disapproval. Brothers and sisters, you have become a fellow citizen and you have a new authority over your life. Jesus is your legacy. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. Do you know that? If we're to be the church, it redefines your responsibilities to one another. So by the time that you get to this metaphor household in verse 19, Paul has worked on you a little bit. He works on the Gentiles. He says your fellow citizens. It means you have a new status. You have a new authority. Now ready for this? Here's the household metaphor that you come from horrible homes, but here it is. You're a member of God's household. And Paul says that the church doesn't feel like home. What Paul is trying to tell you is that in the church, it should redefine what home feels like. And that's what we should be for each other. Listen, Trinity ought to be an oasis for people to come, no matter their background, and feel like here, even though they may come to Trinity for years and not be a Christian, and we shake them, Again, to get the quarter to drop from what they know in their heart, head to their heart. We love them. And some of you this morning, in the rocking of the words of my voice, your quarter's beginning to drop. And brother, you need to believe. Sister, you need to believe that Jesus Christ is not just some God in the sky. He is the one for you. He is your legacy. He knows you. And he bought you with his blood. It says that um, you're members of God's household, which means you're accepted by your father. It means that you now have new responsibilities one to another. 
that you don't live the same way that you used to live, that now we have a common enemy. It's like the Dust Bowl of the 1930s in Oklahoma. Remember Boise City, Oklahoma, in western Oklahoma? In April of 33 to April of 34, it was the worst series of dust storms in the history of America. One quarter of the money we spent on World War II was gone trying to help the nation recover from the dust bowls of just one year between April of 33 and 34. And people would see these dust bowls come from miles away. And what, no matter how many wet towels they clogged into the crevices of their home, dust got in. It got in their mouth. It got in their dishes. It got in their clothing. They wore dust. It's the same with the church. No matter how perfect you try to be as a young church plant, you can stick as many things as you want to in those cracks. Sin's going to get in. The question is, will we work together to clean up the farm? Will we work together to sweep out the dust? Sin is a part of humanity. Don't be surprised when you feel grit in your teeth. The dust storms are going to come. But to God, we are together in this thing, folks. And if we're going to be a church that's going to help renew Owasso, we can't be overly concerned about the church. Edmund Clowney wrote a book called The Church. And one of the things that he says that's very, very helpful to me, that in the history of Christendom, when the church, actually it's the other quote Eli of Edmund Clowney, when the church has a keen interest on itself, when it's overly concerned with itself, it is the begin of spiritual decay. In other words, what he says is, if the church rather than Christ becomes the center of our devotion, spiritual decay has begun. A doctrine of the church that does not center upon Christ is self-defeating and false. But Jesus said to his disciples who confessed him, I will build my church. And to ignore his purpose is to deny his lordship. The good news of Christ's coming includes the good news of what he came to do. To join us to himself and in himself to make us one. To join us to one another as his body and to be the new people of God. You know what the church is? The church is the visible manifestation of the power of God. And if we get overly concerned about this or that, about this church or this denomination, spiritual decay will have already begun. We want to feast upon Christ and him crucified. Come what may of Trinity Presbyterian Church, we want to be a people who glorify Jesus, who make much of him all the days of our life. That's how you're renewed spiritually. It is not by thinking about this or that program. And many of you know this because many of you come from backgrounds where you've been so crushed by the way the church has treated you. Obsessed with their image in town. Wouldn't it be great if we could help each other, help me as I help you keep Christ the center as we rest upon Christ and him crucified. Amen? Gosh, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? That's what this town needs so badly. That's why Chris and I connect on Wednesday mornings because we just pray that the church would not be known for all the differences. And there are some great differences. But so that when people come into Owasso, they see a group of men who are praying for the gospel of Jesus Christ, despite whether you know that it's the season of Easter or not, despite the liturgy of this particular church. You begin to have reconciliation with each other and you become the church and you lower yourself enough
to define yourself not chiefly as a Presbyterian. Oh, you know so much about Calvin. Repent of that attitude, man. But that you know about Jesus Christ and him crucified. It will change your life. Because it will create in you a yearning for the church for the first time. And we see in the fall, on down the road, when Paul explains to us what this practically looks like, when he says for us, for example, in Ephesians um, uh, chapter 4, Now you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbors. For we are members of one another. Are you walking with eggshells, on eggshells with somebody? Before you take the supper, if there's somebody in this room that you're walking with eggshells on, you know what I mean? You're walking on eggshells with. You need to move toward them and repent and reconcile. For some of us, that may be a huge thing to ask, and so all I'm asking you to do is pray about it. Is there somebody in the town that you hate because they've wronged you? I'm not asking for you to go and you know, forget all that they've done now or tomorrow or next week, but I am asking you, would you be willing to pray about it? That's progress. Would you begin to come closer to the cross and let Christ whisper over you, you are accepted. And therefore, you together with your brothers and sisters live as the evidence of the immeasurable power of my greatness in your midst. And it will create in us a yearning. And as the Holy Spirit shakes us, the quarter is going to drop. And you will be satisfied. But playing in a church and being the church is like a sport that's very foreign to you. The movement's totally different. The equipment feels a little uncomfortable. It is new. And so we have to help ourselves learn to play it together. Can we do that? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to be the church. The church is not a building. The church is a people. It's your people. It's a people on the go for your glory. And so would you help us to have a yearning to be the church together? Lord, would you help us in our community groups to grow? Would you help people who aren't yet in community groups to get in them? Would you help us to increase our surface area together around town so that we might know believers, other believers even, that don't go to our church, and we might help point them to Jesus. We might remind them that Jesus is their legacy. And so, Lord, would you help us to do that? And begin with me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.